Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, providing important treatment options for patients with different types of lung, bladder, ovarian, breast, and blood cancers. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with your host, Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about the role of surgery in breast cancer with Dr. Tristan Park. Dr. Park is an assistant professor of surgical oncology at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology. So, Tristan, why don't you start by telling us a little bit about breast cancer? We know that it's incredibly common. Um, So tell us a little bit about how it's found um, and kind of how it's treated. So um, this is one of the reasons why I chose to go into breast cancer. I feel like breast cancer is uh, one of the fields in oncology, especially the surgical treatment of it, where it has evolved so drastically in a positive way that... um, Um, I really wanted to take part in its care. So um, as of 2020, um, uh, the treatment of breast cancer, the detection of breast cancer actually has uh, morphed to the point where a lot of these cancers are caught by screening uh, modalities such as mammogram and ultrasound. Um, Many, many decades ago, um, before this was implemented, um, these types of cancers would be caught in a much later stage where the patient would be able to feel it. Fortunately, in this day and age, that's a more rare occurrence. And we um, capture these cancers through screening modalities implemented by general practitioners and OBGYNs. And we catch them at very um, early stage um, uh, settings where the patients generally can't even feel it. And so, you know, people will go for their regular mammogram. I suppose one of the other questions that's a real bugaboo in this field um, and is always controversial is, Um, The question that many people may be asking themselves, which is, when should I start having a mammogram? Well, um, the... the, Guidelines are all over the place, the aren't they? The guidelines are all over the place. Um, I uh, generally see patients and recommend patients to start getting their annual mammograms at the age of 40. Um, there has been adjustments um, and different um, entities such as the... Um, USPSTF uh, yes, yes, and yes, others. Yeah, yeah that have... Um, uh, prolonged the or delayed the age of um, screening, um, some up till the age of 50. Um, but uh, in general, um, I see patients that have uh, started screening at the age of 40, and that's the general recommendation. Okay. And so, you know, people out there should know that, you know, getting mammograms are really effective in terms of finding these cancers early, um, which really allows them to be treated in the most efficacious way and actually improve survival. So let's suppose somebody goes for a mammogram and they find something that they didn't otherwise feel. They felt absolutely fine. And then they're shocked and horrified that the radiologist wants to do a biopsy and does a biopsy. And lo and behold, it comes back breast cancer. Answer. What is the conversation that you have with these patients at that point? At this point, I tell the patient that um, uh, this can- the, the current cancer that was detected um, is generally very small. Um, and um, in the average um, patient that um, this happens to is generally a favorable um, receptor profile or the blueprint of the cancer is quite 
favorable. It's generally estrogen receptor positive, lower grade, and this is generally more in the um, uh, the older population. So I, at this point, I usually tell them um, that this is not a uh, death sentence uh, by any means and that this is treated on a routine basis um, uh, most commonly and that most, most likely uh, the bulk of the patients I see, particularly as a surgical oncologist, will not die from their breast cancer but will die of other natural means outside of their cancer. Sure. And so, you know, breast cancers are really well treated these days. Tell us a little bit about the modalities by which breast cancer is treated. I mean, you're a surgeon, um, so clearly surgery is one of the mainstays of treatment of breast cancer. So what are the surgical options that patients have these days? Well, so in this day and age, we're very uh, lucky to have several modalities, surgical modalities available for the treatment of breast cancer. Uh, Way back in the day, the day of like... um, uh, Sir William Halstead, you know, back in the you know well over fifty plus years ago, there was only one option, which is removing the whole breast, um, otherwise known as a mastectomy. Uh, but now, with um, uh, modern uh, surgical and multidisciplinary management, um, we're able to do something called breast conservation therapy, where we just remove the tumor locally if it's um, small enough and the ratio of the breast and the tumor is favorable, um, and supplement that um, local resection of the tumor with something called whole breast radiation therapy, um, which uh, can give you a cancer-free result that's nearly identical to um, what we would traditionally have to do, which is uh, remove the whole breast. So how do you do breast-conserving surgery if you can't see or feel this tumor? I mean, these women wouldn't have been able to feel this tumor. It just got picked up incidentally on a mammogram. So how do you know that you're getting out the spot that actually had the cancer? So this is one of my favorite um, uh, elements of my job. It's we get to use all this wonderful technology to help us uh, find this tumor in a, uh, a situation where otherwise, I, you know, my naked eyes, my hands, uh, and, the, and the patient wouldn't be able to tell me where it is. So basically, we use a combination of imaging as well as localizing um, uh, technologies to help us pinpoint exactly where it is. The most classical one is something called a, a wire, which basically um, the patient comes in and our, my radiology colleagues using either a mammogram or a, um, an ultrasound can pinpoint exactly where it is and place this little wire that basically points to exactly where the tumor is. And I use this wire to help me um, help me in the operation and uh, find exactly uh, where to um, resect. And then uh, I get to use another uh, very um, fun high-tech machine, which I call it a mini mammogram machine inside the operating room where I could place the specimen inside and confirm with all of of that technology that I indeed took the um, suspicious area out. Um, Now that's the wire... um, that kind of points to, physically points to where the tumor is, is being replaced by these um, other non, it's called non-wire localization methods. Um, this includes little um, little gadgets that are the size of like a, a, um, a grain of rice that uses different either um, radioactivity or radio frequency or magnet um, magnetic waves to um, help us detect it. And I get to use uh, something that's you know, in the similar vein as like a Geiger counter, and uh, I get to use that to tell me exactly where to go. Um, so 
um, as of two, 2020, we have all these wonderful modalities to find exactly where, the, where these tiny tumors are um, and uh, bring minimal um, uh, harm to the patient. And so, so for many of these patients who have very small cancers, you can use technology to help you to find exactly where the cancer is and remove it. Now, sometimes patients may have, you know, widespread calcifications or calcium spots that show up on their mammogram that may, in fact, be pre-cancer. But if that all is all over the breast. Is there still a role for mastectomy in these patients? Oh, certainly. Um, if they have large areas of calcifications that um, we generally um, confirm with additional biopsies that these are either you know either early stage cancer or precancer, um, I would definitely recommend the patient to have a mastectomy. Um, but fortunately, um, in this day and age, we could also have wonderful reconstructive um, options along working side by side with our plastic surgery colleagues and have results where um, it looks much better or if not, it looks just as good as, as we started. And so tell us a little bit about how that works. I mean, do you operate with the plastic surgeons all at the same time? Do they use implants? Do they use people's own tissue? How does that work? So generally, we work um, at the same time. Uh, we have we work uh, we we sometimes start at the same time and we work as a, a big team. Um, so that's actually a lot of fun and. Um, and the ways that the plastic surgeons can reconstruct um, the breast once I've removed it um, includes using uh, implants. Um, and in some case, some patients, um, we could also use their uh, natural tissues that are found in either in the belly area, the, the leg area, or the uh, buttock area to reconstruct uh, a breast that's actually made from their own tissues. Um, this is a much longer procedure, obviously, but um, has a lot of benefits, including feeling more natural and it ages uh, accordingly as the, as the patient ages as well. And so, you know, a lot of times we, we partner with the plastic surgeons really to get an optimal aesthetic result. There's now a concept that has come about called oncoplastic surgery, where people are, are kind of combining oncology and plastic surgery, even when doing these smaller resections. Do you do that? Tell us a little bit about that concept. Well, I think this is a um, developing um, concept in, in America. I think it's uh, done more so in, in certain parts of America as well as I think it's done more so in Europe. But um, I'm a big propon proponent of it, and I try to incorporate um, oncoplastic techniques in my surgeries, particularly since I feel like as of 2020 and as a surgeon, I'm able to treat these patients um, and resect their cancers. And hopefully, you know, they'll be living for another 20 to 50 years. Um, and I want them to be happy with how they look. So this includes um, more minor things such as very strategic incision placement where it's well hidden. It could be um, in areas of the breast where um, there, there's like a natural crease or 
Um, there's uh, natural uh, shadowing so that the, the scar is, is quite hidden. Um, this also could include once you remove the actual tumor that um, the tissues or the breast tissues that are surrounding it are moved around a bit so that the, um, the cavity that's left behind is not as obvious, if not completely filled up. Um, and there's an, another uh, wonderful option called oncoplastic reduction, where if the patient starts off quite large-breasted, um, we could um, remove a tumor, and then um, the plastic surgeon could um, do a classical-style reduction of that breast and then also do a reduction of the other breast so that she ends up both with um, the tumor that's removed and both breasts that look quite symmetrical, and a lot of times in these larger-breasted women, it also has the added benefit of you know all the relief of back pain and and the other uh, issues that occurred with um, that occurred prior. So, so it sounds like breast cancer, as you said, is not necessarily a death sentence. There are many surgical options for women, especially when they present early. Now, you mentioned some of the adjuvant therapies that we also use and the importance of a multidisciplinary team. One of the things you talked about was radiation therapy after breast conserving surgery. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and what things people might have to look forward to uh, in terms of the side effects of radiation, how long it is and so on? Certainly. So, um, again, we're very blessed in this modern times that um, this radiation treatment can be um, very seamless and incorporated into one schedule in a way that causes minimal disruption. It's usually, um, I usually tell patients that it's about, you know, 30, around 30 minutes door to door um, and that, uh, you know, you could fit it in during your lunch hour, you could go before work or you could drop by after work. Um, it lasts about four to six weeks depending on um, the plan that the radiation oncologist um, maps out for you. And they basically radiate the, the, the chest wall of the side of the tumor. So we call it whole breast radiation therapy. Um, so major um, and most common side effects include um, during the time of the radiation, patients generally feel some some type some level of fatigue, but um, most patients actually could work through it. They work full time, and they do note the fatigue, but it's not limiting. And the fatigue goes away once the radiation stops. The other most common side effect would include um, kind of changes to the skin and texture of the breast. Uh, this includes a darkening of the skin, like you you had a like a deep tan, and um, uh, also the the breast tissue could get more firm and uh, slightly more contracted. And sometimes patients consider that a positive because it's a more kind of firm feeling, which some people like. Okay. So it sounds like there are lots of options for breast cancer. We're going to learn a little bit more right after we take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca. The Beyond Pink campaign aims to empower metastatic breast cancer patients and their loved ones to learn more about their diagnosis and make informed decisions. Learn more at lifebeyondpink.com. This is a medical minute about survivorship. Completing treatment for cancer is a very exciting milestone, but cancer and its treatment can be a life-changing experience. For cancer survivors, the return to normal activities and relationships can be difficult, and some survivors face long-term side effects resulting from their treatment, including heart problems, osteoporosis, fertility issues, and an increased risk of second cancers. 
Resources are available to help keep cancer survivors well and focused on healthy living. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Tristan Park. We're talking about the role of surgery in breast cancer, and right before the break, we talked about many surgical options, varying from breast-conserving surgery, which we can do for even non-palpable tumors, all the way up to mastectomies that we can do with immediate reconstruction. And we talked a little bit about radiation, which is one of the ancillary adjuvant therapies that we use after breast-conserving surgery that allows outcomes to be equivalent to that of a mastectomy. But Tristan, you know, one of the questions that people often ask is, do I need chemo? Can you talk a little bit about who needs chemotherapy and who doesn't in terms of breast cancer? Uh, Certainly. So um, uh, chemotherapy um, is the systemic um, kind of treatment for breast cancer. And um, generally, in patients that have larger hi- larger tumors or uh, tumors that are higher grade, meaning the at the cellular level that the cancer cells are more active, or if they have uh, evidence that the disease had spread to either the lymph nodes um, or to other organs, uh, s- chemotherapy is then recommended. Okay. And so, you know, on this show, we've talked a lot about different kinds of chemotherapy. Before we get to that, though, you know, you did mention um, before the break that many of these cancers are what you called a a favorable subtype. Um, And you mentioned things like estrogen receptor. Tell us how those things impact uh, whether a patient will need chemotherapy or not. So, um, uh, so, Breast cancer um, subtypes include are dependent on the expression of three different receptors that or uh, molecules that are found on on top of the cancer cell. Uh, that includes estrogen receptor, progesterone receptor, and a third receptor called HER2 nu. Um, so, depending on the, your combination of um, receptor expression, uh, that de- determines kind of like your, the blueprint of your cancer. And um, there's certain um, uh, combinations where um, we have specific or so-called targeted therapies available. So if you're estrogen receptor positive, you could have um, treatment that blocks the estrogen receptor in the form of uh, systemic endocrine therapy. If you're um, HER2 positive, you could have a targeted therapy um, in the form of uh, Herceptin. And if you're negative for all three, um, generally uh, chemotherapy and and, uh, and some evidence that uh, immune-based therapies or therapies that target the immune system can uh, provide benefit. Okay. So I want to get to the immune therapy because certainly that's a hot topic. But just before we go there, tell us a little bit about endocrine therapy. Is this really chemotherapy? I mean, should people be afraid that they're going to lose their hair or those kinds of things? Uh, It's definitely not the same as chemotherapy. but it is systemic therapy, meaning that it's uh, it will affect you know you from head to toe, which will um, so any cancer cells that are floating in your body would could be um, s- sufficiently targeted. Um, 
But it definitely will not cause hair loss. It mainly blocks the estrogen receptor um, through multiple mechanisms. And there's different families of of, um, estrogen-blocking modalities. Um, But generally... Um, it will not cause hair loss, and it's a it's a pill that you take like a vitamin, for instance. Um, and generally, it's given um, from five to ten years, and it could uh, result in a risk reduction of cancer recurrence or um, the emergence of new estrogen receptor positive cancers um, on on either breast. So it sounds like for many people, um, especially if they have an estrogen receptor positive cancer, endocrine therapy with a little pill that you take once a day might be sufficient. But for some patients, particularly those who have larger cancers or who are lymph node positive or who may have a genomic profile that um, is a little bit worse, chemotherapy might be something that's indicated. Yes, it's, it will definitely be indicated in those types of patients. And then after um, their course of chemotherapy is finished, they have the added benefit of having this additional um, treatment of the endocrine therapy that could provide further benefit that lasts that you know will last you know five to ten years as as long as they take the pill. So, so something really uh, to think about now. Uh, the side effects of that endocrine therapy, you mentioned that it doesn't make your hair fall out. Um, does it have other side effects that people should be aware of? Yes, it could cause um, uh, symptoms of menopause, including hot flashes um, and fatigue. Um, other common things include uh, musculoskeletal pain, joint pains, and muscle aches. Um, and then there's very rare side effects, uh, which include clots in your um, lower extremities or in your lungs and um, and other rare cancers. But those are quite rare, and actually the risk-benefit ratio for the average patient is to the point where we generally, if they could take the endocrine therapy, that it, it's, a, it's a plus to take it. Okay. Now, getting into the chemotherapy and... Uh, Um, You mentioned that in some of these cancers, particularly those where um, the estrogen receptor is negative, so they can't take endocrine therapy, um, they can't take uh, HER2-directed therapy because, let's say, their HER2 is negative, the chemotherapy might be of benefit um, because there is no other targeted therapy uh, for these patients. And you mentioned specifically immunotherapy. Now, I know that that's something that you're working on in your lab. Can you tell us a little bit more about these so-called triple negative breast cancers, um, the implications of that subtype, and how they're managed? So triple negative breast cancers are is considered, you know, the most um, poor prognosis and aggressive subtype of cancer. Um, it's negative for all three receptors. There's a paucity of treatment options for them as, as uh, you know, they're not eligible for the estrogen or the, the HER2-based targeted treatments since they're not expressing those, those receptors. Um, and um, the interesting thing, though, which um, is that uh, they happen to, in, in multiple uh, preclinical um, studies, um, these tumors have shown to have generate more mutations. Um, they're called somatic mutations, or the mutations are, that are only found in the actual cancer cells. Um, so they have a higher level of um, what we call mutational load, and generally that's correlated with more response to immune therapy, because the more mutations you have on your non-normal cells, the more likely your immune system could detect them. 
or, or kind of seek them out and, and kill these cancer cells that have, you know, all these targets that are, um, that are not self and uh, portraying themselves to, the, to, to yourself. So how come then your normal immune system, given the mutational load of these cancers, how come your immune system doesn't seek them out and get rid of them by itself? So um, there's multiple uh, schools of thought uh, for the reasons why um, cancer cells evade the immune system. Um, So uh, this includes the cancer cells could evolve ways to um, hide themselves from the immune system, um, um, overexpressing kind of inhibitory markers that kind of blunt the immune system or makes the immune system weaker in that particular, you know, um, location, um, as well as um, that's, that's the main one. And, um, and so, so now are there therapies that have tried to unhide the cancer or make the immune system stronger against these particular cancers? Tell us more about the immunotherapies. Yes, of course. Um, so um, the... You know, the, the Nobel Prize for <coughs> Cancer has been awarded recently to um, this, this concept called checkpoint inhibitors. So the checkpoint, the immune checkpoints are natural breaks that um, the people have as well as uh, the cancer cells have kind of manipulated to make the immune system blunted. So normally if, you know, one of your immune cells recognizes, let's say, a foreign antigen like the flu or something, um, and it uh, generates a response, you want it to generate enough of a response so that it clears that problem, but it, you don't want it to go crazy because then, then it could harm your normal tissues. And that's actually the opposite side of that spectrum is called autoimmune disease. Um, so these immune checkpoints occur in nature and are also kind of um, taken advantage of by the cancer cells. So one way to kind of selectively um, strengthen the immune system or make them more, um, uh, make the cancers more visible to the immune system includes something called checkpoint inhibitors, which basically takes the breaks off these immune cells and makes the immune cells more prone to um, detecting um, detecting the, the cancer cell that's, um, that's non-self. And so have there been studies looking at these immunotherapies in triple negative breast cancer? Does this concept really work? And the second part of that question is, if you take the breaks off the immune system and the breaks were put there so that you don't go nuts, as you said, and and get kind of autoimmune conditions, do we find that in patients who are taking these immune therapies that they get these symptoms of autoimmune disease? Certainly. So... um uh, in the past one year, um, actually, the FDA had approved uh, the first immune-based therapy for triple negative breast cancer in the metastatic setting, meaning the, the patient has widespread disease um, outside of the breast and lymph nodes. Um, this drug is called atizolizumab, and it targets um, PDL1, which is one of these checkpoint markers. Um, it's shown benefit uh, for overall survival in the in uh, a specific cohort of triple negative breast cancer cells that express high levels of the PDL1. Um, so that's been an exciting milestone. And also, as a surgeon, um, I've been uh, eagerly um, following the 
the use of this, these uh, checkpoint inhibitors in the neoadjuvant setting, meaning we give this therapy prior to surgery, and hopefully that will make the tumor shrink. Uh, sometimes it makes it shrink to the point where it's completely gone, and by the time we take it out and uh, do sur- perform surgery on the patient, uh, the tumor has completely disappeared, um, and that results in something called a pathological complete, complete response. So um, the latest trial that... Um, and that's coming to my head is the Keynote 522 trial that was um, um, discussed at uh, ESMO um, this past year. And that had shown that when you add one of these checkpoint drugs called pembrolizumab um, with the traditional neoadjuvant chemotherapy setting, um, that this could inc- increase or improve the complete response rate, meaning the cancer is completely obliterated and there's no evidence of it when we remove it um, from the patient, um, sometimes up to 70% in certain cohorts of patients that um, have expressed high levels of pdl one um, But in general, it improves this, um, this um, surrogate of pathological complete response by almost 15 points, which is definitely very encouraging. So that sounds really exciting, but what about the side effects of this immune therapy? I mean, do people get autoimmune conditions? Are those long-lasting? Is there a way to put on the brakes after you've taken the brakes off? Well, certainly. So, you know, with every new tool comes, uh, you know, the negatives. Um, So there are um, autoimmune side effect profiles seen with the use of these drugs. Um, so, but in breast cancer, um, I think we're fortunate um, in this keynote 522 trial that the, the side effect profile or the autoimmune profile was, was rather mild. Um, in d- other disease processes, other cancers that utilize um, checkpoint inhibitors, um, you know, there, there could be more severe autoimmune effects, including pneumonitis or colitis, uh, requiring um, interventions and hospitalizations. But in the in the breast cancer setting, um, the most common um, side effect seen that's autoimmune-related is a effect on your thyroid gland, which you know c- can be alleviated in an outpatient setting with you know the su- supplemental thyroid medication. Um, but the kind of the more severe um, toxicity profile seen in um, other c- cancer types, including like melanoma, that's the most um, famous one, um, actually are, are not seen as much. That being said, um, you know there are the uh, occasional and uh, quite rare severe side effects that sometimes could even cause death. So uh, we have to be, you know, careful, um, cautiously optimistic with the use of these um, these uh, breakthrough drugs. Dr. Tristan Park is an assistant professor of surgical oncology at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.